Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 98. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Every one of us at some point in our lives has witnessed the power of timing in life. Whether it's pivotal moments in life, these so-called chance encounters, or being in the right place at the right time. And our guest this episode, Nathan Whitaker, fully understands this power. Nathan would leave his hometown of Gainesville, Florida to play baseball at Duke University, where he would also play football for Steve Spurrier before Coach Spurrier was known as the old ball coach. After graduating cum laude from Harvard Law School, his path would eventually lead to the NFL, working for both the Jacksonville Jaguars and Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the player personnel departments, before then embarking on a career in writing after he met Tony Dungy during his time in Tampa Bay. In 2007, he would release his first book, Quiet Strength, Tony Dungy's memoir, which reached number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. And Nathan has now had 10 other books on the New York Times bestsellers list, including the book he co-authored with Tim Tebow, through my eyes. You can also find him speaking to various corporations, teams, and other organizations, and make sure you catch his latest book with Tony Dungy, The Soul of a Team. Here's episode 98 with Nathan Whitaker. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast here with me. I, I know things have probably been a whirlwind for you over the past few months. You were actually up here in my part of the country not too long ago in Greenville, South Carolina, speaking to the Wofford football team. So in terms of speaking, how did this all come about for you coming from uh, an author to a speaker? What was that process like and what are you speaking about these days? Well, yeah, I was up your way and I actually got in and I was supposed to go on to, up to Duke the next day. And that was right before Florence hit. So so I darted into your area and then realized I needed to get back down south before the hurricane uh, came. And uh, boy, you guys really got hammered by that. Um, but it was it's been a, it's been a fun journey. I've always done some speaking. Um, maybe it's my legal background or just my propensity for talking, but I've always enjoyed speaking. And then um when I worked for the Buccaneers and Jaguars, I got out into the community some and, and uh, tried to kind of do the civic duties and speak to uh, different clubs and the like, Rotary, Kiwanis, that sort of thing. So I was accustomed to it. And then once I started writing books with Tony Dungy, people would often say something along the lines of, we'd love to have a message on leadership or we'd love to have hear about the values of Tony Dungy or then later Tim Tebow. But we understand that we probably can't uh, either afford them or they're too busy with their schedule. Could we get, could we get you to come? And so that has, it kind of happened accidentally initially. And now I've got uh, somebody working with me as far as helping me find uh, more things and, and handle the requests that come in. And so I've been able to do a fair amount of speaking. So I've spoken to sports teams around the country. I've spoken to companies around the country and it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoy getting out and meeting people and, and having a chance to speak. And then when they're like Wofford basketball and or football, 
and they go on and win a playoff game or, or the basketball team beating uh, South Carolina on the road by 20, I can then pretend like I deserve some of the credit. <laughs> That's right. So, it, was, it was all you, right? <laughs> right, right. You motivated them. So have you embraced yeah. it and enjoyed it much more than you had anticipated? I really do. I really enjoy it a lot. It's, it's energizing to speak. And, and then I really enjoy the relationships, um, you know, getting to know Mike Young, the head coach at Wofford, or David Cutcliffe, the head coach at Duke, or folks at Western Michigan, or other places. I really enjoy doing that. And then also the corporations as well. I, I, there was a company, uh, an agricultural credit uh, union in southwestern Minnesota that I'd never heard of. And so before I know it, I'm, I'm on a plane and I'm spending a day and a half with these folks learning about what they do. And and they're telling me that, no, this is not snow. It's actually corn dust in the air that's floating down. They were uh, harvesting at that time of year. But it was cold, and I'm looking around thinking, what is the white stuff in the, in the sky? And they're telling me it's corn dust. So anyway, it's a good chance to meet new people and to learn new things, especially for a Florida guy. Yes. Now, when you're speaking to, say, a corporation versus a sports team, are they one in the same, though, in terms of the message, talking about leadership? Well, it depends on the particulars of what either the coach or the company's looking for. And, and I, because I try to customize what I'm going to say. And so I try to understand a little bit about what they're going through, what's prompted them to have somebody come in from the outside. A lot of times coaches will say, you know, anything you say is great because it's just going to be a different voice and something I can reinforce. And, and so they just are looking for another voice. Sometimes with companies, they'll say, you know, we're really struggling as far as, the economic downturn and up in Minnesota and, and agricultural um, commodity prices and the like. And, and so we really could use a note of encouragement. So if you don't mind talking about leadership and the like, but make sure that it's an encouraging sort of thing and, and kind of build into that. So it depends on the, on the particulars of the, of the company or the team. Um, but there are a lot of similarities. And that was one of the things we wanted to get across when we worked on the mentor leader for for Tony, or then um, in the upcoming book that's coming up on teamwork with Coach Dungey, one of the things we wanted to make sure that people understood is that it's the same in any organization, and and it may be a different industry or a different field, but teamwork is teamwork, and and so sometimes we act as if these things only work in sports, or then sports teams will look and say, well, a corporation may do that, but uh, but that doesn't apply here. Uh, Tony got a call one time from an NFL owner who said. Uh, Asked Tony if he could help him um, in his head coaching search. And Tony said, well, I, I can, but I'm not sure why you need me. And the guy said, well, you know, I've, uh, you know I, I, I could just use a little guidance on who I'm looking for and leadership qualities. And, and Tony said, you know, you've got $4 billion worth of companies elsewhere, plus this NFL team. You have hired leaders. And the, and, the, and the owner, who I won't name, said, well, yes, but football but football's different. I need a different kind of leader, and it requires different skill sets. And Tony said, no, you know, it's, it, leadership is leadership. And when you've hired somebody to run an organization as a CEO, that's really no different than what you're looking for in head coach. And anyway, I think, the, I think the guy, he ended up bringing in Tony for an interview or two, but Tony was telling him, uh, I think, in vain, that, that these skill sets really are transferable across across industries, whether it's football or, or business or whatever have you, nonprofits. Agreed. So, yeah, and I think that's why a lot of people can draw so many things from sports because it is so applicable in other parts of their life, especially in their careers. Absolutely. 
um, I was looking at, uh, you know, down here at the University of Florida, that's in our backyard, and and that's where I have one of my degrees from, and I've gotten to be good friends with with a number of the coaches, and was watching uh, a women's basketball game the other day, and Florida lost, and are really struggling through some tough times, especially at an athletic department that prides itself on all of its sports being very competitive and and all the teams being very good. And as I was watching them, I was thinking, my gosh, there are so many lessons here and so many things where whether it's good times or bad, how do we deal with success? How do we deal with failure? How do we deal with feels like nothing's going right? And, and I've talked to to high school and college kids and others about, you know, there are times we, we it's trite to say it's, you know, starkest before the dawn and, and hang in there because the sun's going to rise. But but the reality is when you're struggling in business or or in whatever it is, it's not always clear when the sun's coming up. And sometimes you just got to kind of white knuckle it and hang on and, and keep pressing on with what you think is going to work and what you believe in. So I do think those lessons are completely applicable across the board, whether it's sports or or whatever in life. Um, I think we all go through those things. Yes. And so and there's obviously a starting point for people as well. And for you growing up in Gainesville, Florida, you getting into sports, how did that happen? What did that look like? So I love sports. And I, you know, as a kid was no different than what I was saying I did last week where I would, it was just different because I was riding my bike then instead of driving over to different events. But I would ride my bike over, we went to every Florida football game and and then I would ride my bike over and watch baseball games or basketball and whatever and grew up a huge Gator fan. And, and I jokingly tell people that, that I would have been a Gator but for the lack of athletic ability. Um, <laughs> but, but I was actually fortunate enough to be recruited to play baseball at Duke and then walked on in football and, and spent my time there. And, and when it was over, it was over. I, was, I had clearly maxed out and didn't play a ton in either. And so that was all the ability I had. And, and so we went off to law school, trying to figure out what to do with an English degree, and went to law school, practiced law for a little bit, and was fortunate to uh, get a job at the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so that got me back in and around sports in a way that, uh, that made sense with given my l- lack of ability. And so I could be around it and, and work with a team and, and then work with the Buccaneers as well and and spent six years with those, and then and then decided to uh, decided to write books. Coach Gruden cleaned out the front office uh, during my time in Tampa, and I decided to pass on offers from the Seahawks and the Falcons, and had a chance to go to the Bears, and and decided maybe I'd scratch that itch to be directly in sports, and so moved on to trying to write books. So that kind of in a nutshell is. Yeah, and during, so during that process, and as you're at Duke and playing, had you thought about that you wanted to have a career in sports, even though you knew you weren't going to continue playing, but that you wanted to work in sports? Uh, no, not really. And and I guess there's two parts to it. One of the things that I thought was fascinating was, and I didn't really see it until looking back in retrospect, um, but we... We were fairly successful at Duke in those days. It was the last time Duke won the ACC in football. Steve Spurrier was there. Yeah, I remember that. My freshman year, I was at Clemson in 1989, and you guys beat us and won the ACC that year. We did, and we were 1-3 going into that game. You guys were ranked sixth, and Coach Spurrier said we had a one-in-a-million chance of winning that game. He told the press that. So at Duke, that has been that has been the one-in-a-million <laughs> game ever since then. So we both remember that vividly. Yes. We were not supposed to win that one. 
And but it was interesting. One of my years, they asked us, um, and I can't remember who was in to speak to us. They would have different folks come in to speak to us, and and um, and so somebody came in and said, "How many of you plan on playing football beyond your time here at Duke?" And and Rich, I have a guess that ninety percent of us raised our hands. And and you know the stats that it's going to be a small small percentage of, of folks get from, go from college to the NFL and especially coming out of Duke at that time that, that we were decent, but we were not Alabama or Florida or, you know, Michigan state or whatever it is. And it was interesting how when you're in the middle of it, you aren't often very objective. And so I hear people say, my gosh, how are these, how are some of these guys not going to class? How are they not doing? How can they not understand what's next? And I think that's really important to make sure they keep hearing that because it's easy to get into that echo chamber and you're around all these other, and you're competing at a high level and you think, well, of course I'm competing. I'm going to keep going. And, and so I really hadn't thought about life after sports. We were just kind of all in it and all in the middle of it. And, and thankfully I did have enough folks in my ear giving me those messages. So, so I was going to class and I was doing the right thing. So I, I, ended up in law school because I really didn't know what was next and whether I'd go into sports or whatever it would be. But, but that's kind of how I, I ended up at least in law school. Cause I, I was kind of trying to buy time cause I hadn't thought a whole lot about what was the next step for me professionally and, and what I was going to do after sports. And so do you have a competitive streak in you? I do. When I was, um, when I was writing uh, or trying to write my first book, it was three years of unemployment, basically, and I was trying to write, and our church ended up hiring me in Tampa. It was kind of a, I tell people it was a mercy hiring, that after <laughs> two years of unemployment, our, our church said, you know, maybe you can fill a role for us, and so I worked for them for a while. Well, the first thing I did when I walked in the door was they had done the, uh, they had done the Marcus Buckingham Strengths Finder, and so the whole staff had their top five strengths, and it was all on everybody's desk, and and it's all... And I don't even remember the strengths anymore, but it was the, a lot of them dealt with, with teamwork and communication and whatever. So I take the same thing. And my number one is competitiveness. And they looked at me like, oh, my gosh, what have we done? Um, but it's really it's really a, a sense of always it's not always about competing with others, but there's always a level of, you know, when when Tony's first book came out um, and, and all of a sudden it started doing really well and we're pretty excited and a whole lot better than we could have ever dreamt. Um, and it's going great. And, and then all of a sudden I start hearing, well, Lance Armstrong's book is the top selling one, uh, top selling sports autobiography ever. And, and I start thinking, well, what would it take to top that? And <laughs> so, so anyway, it's not always necessarily trying to, trying to one up somebody, but I do kind of keep track of, huh, is there something I could do here a little better? Is there, you know, is it, is it enough to have anyway? So, and where do, where do you think that competitive streak comes from? Is that from your parents, your DNA, or just growing up? I, I think there's a little bit of a um, little bit of my my DNA, a little bit of background. There's probably a, a combination of nature and nurture. You know, I was very fortunate. Um, you know, my wife worked her way through school and did other things, and and with me, my parents always said. Um, you know, we'll do whatever we can to, to make it so that all you have to do is focus on school. And so I focused, focused on the classroom stuff and then, and then added sports to the mix. And so I really had, I didn't have a lot of distractions. So I was able to focus on those things. And I was very fortunate then to, to have some chances to do things. And, and I think at some point, the more, um, 
the more I kind of got applauded for those. It's it's one of the things I've had to watch as a parent and and understand about me as well that my value ultimately does not come from the accolades and people patting me on the back. And so I've I've had to remind myself that uh, that that stuff is nice, but it doesn't really matter. And so you can kind of get this thirst for I need to do something next. What's next? Uh, I'm I'm hoping people um, recognize that. And the reality is that that if I'm following my passion and and using my platform as best as I can, then that's what really matters. And and it's not some of these other things. The other thing that and you didn't really ask this, but I I feel like I should at least throw it in that I've learned along the way is to make sure we celebrate things as they come. And we can spend so much time thinking about what's next. And well, I, you know, Tony's book hit number two, what would it take to hit number one? Well, at some point you have to stop and say, this is worth celebrating. Otherwise you spend all your time kind of on the, on the habit trail, the wheel and, and spinning and going nowhere and, and not enjoying it. So I've, I've been learning over time. Yeah. <laughs> How long did that take you to learn that? Cause that's not an easy process, especially if you're a competitive type person to take a moment and reflect back and enjoy it. You know, one of the things that um, I, I think it's been great to have my parents and my wife have all been very helpful with that. My, my daughters as well. I can see that in them at times where, you know, my, my, I've got a daughter and at one point, her freshman year of college, she had 102 in one class and 100 in another, and 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 then she was worried about the 91. And I said, well, you know, let's not. I mean, that's great, and I love that you're trying to exceed in everything, and but but it's really not about that. And it's are you enjoying these classes? Are you getting something out of this? And and let's not focus on what went wrong, and I'm using that with quotation marks, right? Because I mean, <laughs> 91 right. is certainly nothing to be upset about. But <laughs> but at the same time, we can spend all our time focused on, on what we can improve or what needs to be tweaked and not realize that, hey, there's a lot of blessings that we've got. And, uh, you know, the things that I've got today are quite likely some of the things that I prayed for yesterday, but now I, I can't appreciate because I'm looking forward to what's tomorrow. Well, if I never focus on what I've got right now and and how grateful I should be for that, then then I can always be um, discontented. And I think that's unhealthy, ultimately. It definitely is. And so when you talk about your position in the NFL, you know, with the Jaguars and the Buccaneers, what did that look like as you're a lawyer for a team? So what was your day-to-day role, so to speak? It was about the coolest lawyer job that I could have drawn up, at least in a in that setting. And and I tell people if if I'm just kind of if it's going to be a quick short conversation or whatever, or they'll they'll see my Super Bowl ring and and they'll look me up and down and say, "There's no way you played." And of course, <laughs> they're right. Um, I'll say, "Well, I was in the scouting department," and that's kind of my quick and short answer. And it's accurate. I was in the player personnel departments of of both teams, and because there just wasn't a ton of legal work to do, and so we we sent most of it out to outside counsel, whether it was stadium contract issues or or workers comp stuff or whatever it might be i would oversee it but i didn't do a lot of it and so what i did mostly was player and coach contract negotiations uh the contracts with our vendors from a travel standpoint so i did all the airline contracts and the hotels and um and and whatever else was involved with us getting from city to city to play our schedule and then I got to do a lot of, uh, as I was doing the salary cap work and the like, they would let me scout. 
And so I went to Georgia Tech with our with our head of player personnel, and he's showing me how to run the film machine and how to talk to coaches and what to learn. And, and I learned that the one you talked about, uh, the coach you make sure you talk about at every school is the strength coach. And and I didn't, I would have never thought of that. But he would, they they taught me that that's the guy who sees players all year long, and that's the person who sees that whether or not they're coming in when times are hard or when there's no crowd, is somebody going to come and put the work in and. So it was really cool to pick up on all those little tidbits and to have them start to teach me scouting. And, and it would have been a, uh, maybe an interesting um, career, but then it was, I shouldn't say nipped short, but when the Buccaneer days were nipped short, I decided that was, that was probably time for me to find something else. But it was very fun while it lasted. You know, like anything else, and I alluded to this a minute ago, we can always be discontented. And, and there were eight of us who worked closely together in Tampa and seven of the eight went on to either be a GM or a, or a team president. And so I'm the one of the eight that was kind of the uh, – uh, didn't really achieve what I was supposed to achieve or, or however you want to say that. <laughs> but <laughs> I was um, – but in the middle of that one day, I'm, I'm walking in and I'm thinking, man, I, this seems to be going south. And, and I could tell that our GM and Coach Gruden weren't getting along and this probably wasn't going to last a whole lot longer and – and I'm walking in and I'm thinking, man, this stinks. I can't believe I'm having to walk into work. And I stopped and looked down and I'm wearing tennis shoes, a pair of shorts, a Buccaneers t-shirt. And I thought, you know, all my law school buddies would love to be walking into work, wearing what I'm wearing, and then I'm going to be standing out at practice. But it was another moment of you get caught up in worry or whatever else, and you can't stop and, and think of the blessing. So Every now and then, I'm learning over time to to appreciate those things, and and hopefully God God probably thinks I'm a slow learner, and I am, but hopefully I'm getting there. <laughs> well, I, I think we all probably are at certain points in our life <laughs> that we're a slow learner. I'm, I can be very stubborn at times. I promise you. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> now, so as you're in that situation with the Bucks, and you had mentioned briefly that look like there might be some other opportunities with teams. Why didn't you pursue those? What was this gravitational pull to what you're doing now in terms of being an author? You know, I really felt called to, um, to write Tony's book. And Tony and I had overlapped for one year with the Buccaneers. And it was, it was Tony's last year before Coach Dungey went on to the Colts. It was his last year in Tampa. It was my first year there. And it was just it was just remarkable to be around him and the private Tony was always the same as the public Tony. And, and I said to him late, late in the year, there were all these rumors that he'd be fired and, and we ended up making the playoffs barely, but then losing to the Eagles and he was fired. And, and so all this negativity and I, and I was alone with Tony at one point and, and worked with him regularly most each day, but, but didn't have a whole lot of time when it was just the two of us. And so one day toward the end of the season, I said to him, Tony, I really appreciate your, your witness in light of the circus that's been going on around us. And typical Tony, he looked at me and he said, you know, Nathan, I can't help but think that there are times when God wants there to be a circus so that people can see there's another way to react. And that ended up in his memoir, ended up being a line in his memoir because it was so remarkable for me. And it was, it was not the, hey, we roll with the punches or, hey, we do our best or, you know what, we just got to hang on and get through these times. It was his perspective was God wants me to be in the middle of this because I'm going to do some good for somebody else. And that was such a remarkable perspective. And so at that point I'd been out of law school for maybe 10 years and, and I had friends in corporate America or law firms or whatever. And they're all, 
dealing with horrible bosses or whatever, you know, the, the cliche is, but a lot of people are just kind of following this path of, of what it takes to achieve and succeed and what you have to sacrifice to do that. And, and Tony had such a different model and he would start his, his coaches meetings at eight thirty in the morning. And he knew that they probably weren't getting home in the evenings to tuck their kids into bed because they would work late into the night often. So he would start late, and his thought was, you can take your children to school, you can do breakfast, you can take them to school, whatever, and I'll start at this time. And it's not perfect, but at least we're trying. And and I thought that was just so refreshing, and we're not going to cut any corners, and we're just going to do things the right way. And and if that's not enough, then it's not enough, but but it should be, and, and, and we'll, that's just how we're going to proceed. So I really felt called to write this one book. The problem was that Tony had no desire to write a book. And so yeah, that's a problem. Thought, you know, that is a problem. <laughs> he said, he said that you know nobody nobody wants to read about me, and and even if they did, I'm not sure I really have much to share. And so I kind of bird dogged him for three years, and and in that time, it was during that time that um, early, probably if it had happened later, I might not. I don't know if my answer would have been the same, but early on, talked to the Seahawks, talked to the Falcons, and others, and and decided I was going to do this book thing because I thought you know. And I'm, I'm an English major and may not be the smartest guy, but I could probably write a book. And, and I think about Tony, you know, if it was about Tony, it'd be great. And then, and then ended up trying to talk him into it. And so it took about three years and, and two years into that process is when I started working at the church. And that's right about the time that his son passed away. And Tony and I were talking shortly thereafter. And I said, you know, I know I've been trying to talk you into this, but now I probably have less interest in writing a book because I don't know how you deal with talking about Jamie and his death and be sensitive to you and your wife and what you would. So, you know what? I'm sorry. I've been hounding you. And Tony said, no, no, no. He's 30 days after Jamie had passed away. He said, you know, Nathan, I've been starting to think that maybe I should write a book because so many parents have reached out to me for what is sadly an epidemic. And if I wasn't head coach of the Colts, I don't know if they would have reached out to me and helped me with my grieving. So maybe my job here is to is to open up and talk about it and see if I can help others get through it and see if I can help others avoid being in this position. And so shortly thereafter, they won the Super Bowl, and all of a sudden he was on board doing a book, and and it turned into a career. So if I had been two years into this three-year process um, and the Seahawks or Falcons or somebody had come calling, uh, my answer might have been different. But, but they came right at the beginning when I was really thought this was going to be easy and take no time. I still had four months left on my Buccaneers contract. And I thought four months, I'll write a book in that time. That'll be fine. But it was 2.8 years later that I finally uh, got it done. So. So how long was it, though, to actually put pen to paper and record Tony's story and actually get a book ready to be published? So it was, I'm glad you asked that, because this is one of those opportunities where um, I can act like I'm just answering the question, but then really ridiculously brag. <laughs> uh, we, wrote, we wrote the book in 24 days. 24 and days? It took me 24 days. It took me two days to sit down and talk with him. I didn't know much about his childhood. Um, his mom passed away right about the time I was joining the Bucks, And, uh, and then his dad um, sometime later. And... So I didn't know them. And so I needed to. So I had two full days in Indianapolis where he just downloaded all that. But the caveat with that is I'd spent, you know, almost three years of thinking about this book, 
watching him in staff meetings, being around him. So a lot of the football stuff I had seen with the Bucks, or I'd seen how he acted or I knew his coaches. And so I had a lot of background information going in, but it was right after the Super Bowl, and Tony um, kind of hit upon this thought of if the book could come out before the season started, before he went to training camp, he could help promote it. And then that way, once the season started, he wouldn't, the publisher wouldn't be looking to him for things and he could just totally focus on the Colts. And so in order to do that, though, we had to get, get them the book in a month and get them the manuscript. And they did an unbelievable job editing it in three weeks and then printing it over the next month and getting it out. And, you know, it, it was just, it, it was a remarkable process. I, I didn't know how I was going to write 50,000 words in a month. It turned out that it was a huge help. My, my dad, who's also an attorney, was helping me look over things as I was writing it, and he would clean it up for me a little bit and then send it on to Tony. And Tony um, is remarkable and, and probably comes as no surprise, but his mom taught uh, high school English and public speaking for 20 years, so Tony's cleaning up stuff. and He's fixing paragraphs. And so after 24 days, we'd, we'd written actually 85,000 words. And then by the time we finished the editing three weeks later, we added to some areas that, that needed to be fleshed out. And so we were, the book's now about 105,000 words. And, and when it came out, um, you know, didn't know what, what to expect. And, and this is kind of where I think the story takes a cool turn because um, it ended up opening at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And then it went to number one and just sold uh, an amazing number of copies and, and really, um, hopefully, I think, based on the stories we've heard, has had a, quite an impact with folks. But what's been fun is to be able to go all the way back to that 24 days and the like and say, you know, you had a first-time author who really didn't know what he was doing. You had a reluctant subject who didn't really want a book about him, but maybe if it could help people, he would try. And, and a publisher who kind of caught the, the vision and and then ended up with something that was so much bigger than you ever could have dreamt. And, you know, you take all those little parts and you go, okay, clearly God's hand was on this because none of us could have, could have engineered that under those circumstances and the like. So, so it really was um, a remarkable process and, and the like, I don't recommend <laughs> writing a book in 24 days. I have no idea. I don't think I could write a paragraph in 24 days, <laughs> let alone 105,000 words. <laughs> but now, was there this? Was, yeah, was there this aspect though? As you mentioned, this is your first book. This is you know right. nobody know you're not an author basically. So was there some? No, no, not basically. No, you can just say you're not an author. Period. <laughs> That's yes, right, yes. right. At that time, yeah. you were not an author. So was there some trepidation in terms of even like the publisher or saying, "Hey, Tony, yeah, we'd love to be a part of this, but you need a true author." Or you know, how did you deal with that? Yeah. Well, Tony. Tony had his choice of publishers. He narrowed it down to six, and we met with them in Indianapolis around his dining room table. So they all they all came in on one given day, and at 9 o'clock was so-and-so, and at 10 o'clock was so-and-so. And so the 9 o'clock came in, and about 45 minutes of the way through, they said, you know, we, we want to phrase this um, as best as we can, but basically we've, we've looked through Publishers Weekly, we've looked through Google and and Nathan, we can't find what else you've written. And I, and we apologize for that. And I said, no, 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 no apology. You did a fantastic job with your search. There's nothing out there. And, and they said, you know, help us understand your plan. And, and my plan was, I mean, 
pathetic. It was, you know, I'm going to wake up early and write until late, and then I'll go to sleep and do it again. <laughs> and and Tony said, Tony kind of held his hand out toward me to get me to stop, and he said, look, don't worry about it. Nathan will have it done by April 1st. And and then we that group left, and Tony said, you know, I'd, as the next group was coming in, Tony said, you know, I really didn't appreciate that question, and so I really think we probably ought to eliminate them. And so I was in this weird position of saying, Tony, actually, everything else they said made sense. And that, too, made sense. So actually, I would be asking the same thing. And and so every group kind of ultimately had that had that question. And in fact, one group said, uh, we'd really rather not have Nathan. We'd like to have a real writer. <laughs> they didn't say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they, you know, and they said, look, this is going to be a big project. We've got a, a lot of copies out that we're planning on having come out. This is not something we want to take a chance on. And Tony said, I trust Nathan. I, I value what he's trying to do here. So either Nathan writes it or there's no book. And so that was, again, just typical Tony as far as what he feels called to do and led to do is, is the way he's going to do it. And But but I got to tell you, then once I started, once we finished that two days of, of recording and then um, I sat down to start writing, I had this moment of, oh my gosh, how am I going to write? What have I done? I have no idea how to do this. And, and so Tony and his wife, Lauren, were praying over it and, and really, um, it, it just went really well, um, and, and very smoothly. And, and so again, I'd love to take all the credit for that, but there definitely, um, there definitely was a lot of work there and it was a, uh, a remarkable process all in all. So now that you have written multiple books, when was the point that you had this self ability to say, all right, I am an author now? You know, it's, it's, that's a, a great question. And I had a friend who's a, a good friend who's a movie producer and, and uh, has done some really big films. And, and he said, he said, I'm struck by uh, an anecdote that he had heard by uh, from one of the Disney Imagineers, and it was one of the original Imagineers, and the guy who worked on Snow White and Dumbo and all the originals. And and after a 30-year career, somebody asked him, you know, what do you? So what do you? What's your typical day like, or something? And and this Imagineer said, after this 30-year career, or toward the end of it, he said, I keep waiting for somebody to come into my office and pull the curtain aside and say, that's all. Anybody can do that. And and I still have that um, at times where I think, really, was it really all just an accident? And am I? Clearly, I'm blessed. But but um, there there are days when I have to remind myself that that I think I do have a skill set and some gifts that God has given me and and the like that are unique. Um, but it's funny how at times you think you come into a career at the age of 38, I guess, and you think, huh. Was I the accidental author, or, <laughs> or is this really what? Um... So anyway, my wife tells me that I'm done trying to find new careers, so I need to embrace being an author and <laughs> and just accept that that's what I am. So exactly, um, you're you're yeah. rolling with that now, right? <laughs> I am, but yeah. it is. There are days when I walk in and think, "Gosh, I mean, anybody could do this." Um, but do you, so? But, are there days when you are writing that you have some self doubt as far as what you're doing? Yes, there are. Um, and, and, you know, and, and also when I turn in things for new clients or do things, I always have this moment of, oh my gosh, I really hope that they like this. I think this is really good, but I can't tell. 
and you get so close to it that you think I, you know, I think this is good and I think this is solid. But until I get that call back, and I thought that's really interesting. After I had it happen again a couple months ago, and I thought, you know, after 11 years and all the different folks I've worked with, that I still am kind of on pins and needles, thinking, "Wow, I hope this turns out." Um, it, it's uh, it's really kind of interesting that uh, that I would still have that, um, and maybe that's a good thing, but I don't think so. So, um, <laughs> try to tell myself maybe that self-doubt's good, but but I'm not sure. But it's an interesting process, it, and and not if it's the creative nature of it that there's not necessarily a right answer. That that when you sit down to write something, there's always a thousand different directions you could take on how to open, how to start, where the tone is. Is it light? Is it heavy? Is it going to shock somebody? And you have this sense after going through it, you have the sense of of where you think it should go, but then you give it to other people and and hope that it resonates somehow with them. So how do you measure success? Because in sports, we can easily measure win or you lose. But what about with right. being an author? How how do you measure that? You know, I um, the first book had come out, Quiet Strength, and it had been this amazing run of of sales and and the second book came out and the second book um, was uncommon. And at the end of a year, um, the publisher came back to us after that book had been out for a year and pitched an idea for a leadership book, which became the mentor leader. But as they were pitching it, Tony said, by the way, I just wanted to apologize uh, for the sales of uncommon. I really thought I was going to do better. I really thought we were going to be able to provide more or, or engage people better or excite them more. And, and so I'm just sorry that one didn't turn out so well. And they looked at him like he was nuts. And Tony said, well, you know, it hadn't sold as much. And they said, Tony, it sold 350,000 copies in a year. And Tony said, I know, but Quiet Strength sold a million its first year. <laughs> and they said, <laughs> okay, your point of reference is so far exactly. skewed. Right? <laughs> so they're telling us the average book sells 10,000 copies over its lifetime. And... And so they're trying to recalibrate that. And we didn't know what we were doing and, and all that. But but we had – so with that as a background, I then spoke um, to a group in Boston uh, later that year. And, and I was talking to the group, and I told them about Tony's life verse, Proverbs 16.3, commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. And I said, look at my journey. You know, I was unemployed for three years and a whole new, a whole new line of work and – and and that verse doesn't speak to timing, but, you know, you commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. And I went through the, the number one uh, New York Times bestseller ranking for Quiet Strength and number two for Uncommon and number two for Mentor Leader. And and after the talk, one of my law school buddies took me aside. And I, Rich, I promise I'm getting to a point here. I really am. <laughs> um, but after, after I finished, one of my law school buddies took me aside and he said, Nathan, that was fantastic. Great. Loved it. Blah, blah, blah. Very nice. Very affirming. And he said, everything was fantastic except your, your whole premise is flat out dead wrong. And I looked at him with shock and he said, look, you can't use a worldly measuring stick to determine whether or not you're successful. And he said, the fact is, I watched you for three years follow what God had put on your heart, this path you were going to take to write a book, to help people, to, to have the lessons you learned from Tony, and to, and to try to build people up in their lives. And he said, whether that sold one copy or a million, what you were doing was successful and significant. And so that's what I have to remind myself, that, 
it's it's tempting to want to say, oh, this hit this list or this has done really well or the client really loved it. When the reality is, I mean, if I'm pursuing what God's put before me with the gifts he's given me, then that's really all I can control. And that is where I kind of have to measure success and significance and whether I'm helping other people out along the way. That's right. And that's where the true value is. Right. Absolutely. And that's what, you know, ultimately, um, you know, they're, they're, whether it's me or you or listeners to your podcast or whatever, I mean, all of us are in different spheres and, and my book might touch somebody that you'll never come in contact with, but you may, when you walk out of the studio, quite likely end up interacting with somebody that I will never interact with. And, and a lot of us wait until, you know, well, if only I was where Tim Tebow is and, and people hung on my every word, or only if I was, you know, on, on TV every Sunday, like Tony, then, then I'd have something to say. But the reality is, you know, we all have people whose lives we're building into in one way or another, and, and we need to take advantage of that. Yes, we do. And so speaking of Tim Tebow, so how did it come about that you were able to work with him on his book, Through My Eyes? Yeah, that was such a thrill because, again, being a Gainesville guy and a Gator, I had watched Tim play here at UF, and and we had mutual friends in the athletic department. My dad had coached baseball at UF, and so we knew a bunch of folks there, and then there were people that, that Tim knew, and his, actually one of his dad's college roommates um, was very involved, board of trustees and all that, and he's the one who connected us and said, hey, we've got a, we've got a Gator writing books, and we've got a Gator who needs a book written. <laughs> yes. And so that's how they put that together. And, and you know, I knew Tony um, before this all started, and, and then I'd written a book with James Brown of CBS Sports, and Tony knew JB, and and Tim, I didn't know at all other than by reputation. And so I entered into this thinking, please don't be a fraud. Please don't be a fraud. And, um, you know, because one, you, you just want to, you know, you want to be accurate, truthful in how you write the book. Secondly, you feel like, you know, it's, it's part of my legacy as well. I mean, if, even in small print, my name's on there somewhere and you don't want to be misleading anybody or whatever. And he was just fantastic. I mean, again, like every, it was just never any different than what you saw uh, in public was being around him. And so it was really a, a fun process the whole time. And yeah, did you write it in 24 days like you did? I didn't. Tony? I didn't. That, this one take a, this one, excuse me, this one took a, about two and a half months. Okay. Um, yeah. So we slowed down the pace on yes, that. Yes, you did. That's, that's right. Now, is there anybody that, is or, or do you have like a wish list of other individuals that you would love to be involved in writing their book? You know, there are folks out there that I admire that I think are neat. Um, you know, Billy Donovan and I have talked from time to time, and and Billy has been giving me the Tony Dungy answer of, "Oh my gosh, nobody would want to read about me." And and you know, Nathan, I certainly have nothing to say. Um, so. So one of these days, maybe um, maybe Billy will change his mind, or maybe not. Um, and then and then it would be fun to get um, out of sports. I mean, I again love sports, but I had somebody one time say to me, um, "Hey, I just had a buddy in politics write a book, and I would have mentioned you, but I knew that you only did sports." And I thought, shoot, no, it was that <laughs> I knew people in sports, and that's how I got started. That's right. Um, yeah, you know, my my daughters love the. Uh, it's an alternative musical group, 21 Pilots, and and they are really doing cool stuff. They they have said I actually reached out to them, and they have said that they don't want to 
they don't want to do a book at this point or maybe ever, or maybe it was just a nice way to let me down. Um, but one of the things, things that, that makes them um, interesting to me is that they've got kind of, kind of this, this similar approach that, that, um, that some of these others, Tony, Tim, others, where, where it's not always, um, you certainly know what they believe in and the like and where they're coming from as, as believers, but they're making sure they're out in the world and they're, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. And, and to me, that's really interesting is how you get into that space and how you make sure that, that you're relevant and that you're in the culture, but you're not being subsumed by the culture and its values and you're holding true to those values you believe in. So anyway, that's where that, that's where that interest came from. And those are some of the people that I find interesting. So we'll see where, the, where all this shakes out and what my next project is. For sure. Well, I think another good one would be Clemson football coach Dabo Sweeney. I know he's going to have a great story to tell at, at some point in a book, for sure. You know, he and I actually talked a couple of years ago. Um, I went out to a practice at spring ball and, and we talked and, and he said, you know what? He said, I have such little time right now between coaching football and the like that any downtime I get, I need to spend with my family and not um, working on a book. So, so I would, but I would love to be um, involved with your, your Clemson Tigers in that way at some point. Uh, he's remarkable what he's done and the way he's done it. Just, just love him. Uh, agreed, one hundred percent. Very fortunate as a Clemson grad to have Coach Sweeney. And, and so, as we're wrapping up here, Nathan, you've shared a lot of wisdom and just part of your journey. But I do like to focus on any other words of wisdom, like phrases, quotes, mottos, or just you know some life advice that has meant a lot to you that you'd like to share. You know, um, it's funny. I, I've, I guess I've heard Tony Dungy speak so many times that. Um, half the quotes that come to mind are um, Chuck Noll quotes, <laughs> and and I grew up a Cowboys fan. Yeah. Um, hey, I'm a Cowboys so, fan right. as well. Fantastic. There you go. So, so I grew up a Cowboys fan, but all I, all I quote now is Chuck Noll, and he had a couple of things that were interesting, um, and two very similar. One was um, one was stubbornness is a virtue if you're right, and. And another one along those lines that, that Tony preached to us when times were tough that last year with the Buccaneers and, and we started out, we lost more than we won halfway through the season. We were in trouble. And, and Tony said, he quoted coach Nolan said, leaving the game plan is a sign of panic and panic is not in our game plan. And his takeaway from that was that we've got to do what we do, that if there are fundamentals, if there are things we believe in, we're going to do those. And if we don't get the results we want, it doesn't mean we're going to change and do it the way that, that uh, the critics say we should. And, and I think that's really valuable a lot of times. Um, and then the other thing that I, that I tell, whether it's sports teams or, or high school kids or I've done some commencement addresses, and, and Coach Noel had another great quote that I think applies in so many areas, and it's champions are champions, not because they do the extraordinary things, but because they do the ordinary things better than anybody else. Champions are champions, not because of the extraordinary things, but the ordinary things. And so I, you know, when you go back and you look at life, did you you show up on time? Did you turn in things when the teacher asked you to turn them in? Did you do what the coach asked without questioning everything? Or, or whether it's all these little things, it's that really the details are so often what make up um, a quality life. And, and the things you want to end up doing, the big things are often premised on just the little things and taking care of the small things along the way. 
That's right. It's those small details for sure. Well, right. Nathan, I can't thank you enough for your time, and I'm excited for your next book with Tony Dungy, Soul of a Team, and looking forward to that. And again, just having you on the podcast has been an honor. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thanks so much, Rich. I really appreciate you having me. With life moving so fast these days for many of us, it's easy to get consumed with the thought of pushing or pulling down a certain path because we're all on a certain quest. But in many situations, it's that ability to pause and just let things breathe when things seem to take shape. And as Nathan experienced firsthand, that power of timing can have a more profound effect on our lives than we could ever imagine. Now that finishes episode 98. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 